This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. I'm joined by my co-host, uh, Wharton Finance Professor and Senior Economist for Wisdom Tree, Jeremy Siegel. We are going to have a very interesting discussion today uh, with the author of a new book, No Worries, How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life, Jared Dillian, author of The Daily Dirt Nap. Also going to be a very interesting discussion with Jared. Uh, but just note, uh, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services, and our discussion is not tied to the offers of any investment products. Professor, uh, we've got more data on the tape. The market keeps hitting new highs. Um, yeah. I'm curious to get your sense of what you see going on. What you see in the bond market, stock market. How, how are you reacting to all this latest news? Yeah, make the trend your friend. Um, don't fight the tape. Uh, old sayings. Uh, yeah, there's so, so much going on. All right, first of all, let, let's take a look at the real, a lot of real data coming through. The ISM, uh, uh, slightly on the weak side. Um, not, not terribly so. Um, uh, uh, the PCE core coming in exactly as expected a relief after the PPI and CPI were up. Um, uh, uh, durable goods were a little bit on, on the weak side. Nothing again to worry about. We had a tick up in, in jobless claims, which I like. It's nearing that mid range of what I think is a sweet area, 200, 240,000. Um, that's fine. Um, uh that's going on now we also had a couple other things um uh, two things in particular um uh the case shower and the fhfa uh housing index came in slightly weak actually the fhfa fhfa at uh, up one tenth was the smallest increase in in a year and case shower has definitely slowed down its increases from what it was uh later last year so we're seeing a little bit of pressure on that on those housing prices. Um, uh, even though that long rates have stabilized, uh, the the long term mortgage rate has stayed in the seven percent uh, zone, thirty year fixed, no points, and um, I think that is putting a little bit of uh, pressure on there. A money supply came out for Tuesday of the month. Uh, I'm surprisingly weak. Uh, um, I've been following the weekly uh, deposits. I've seen some increase, and I thought it would translate into an increase in M2. So we basically have seen a tiny increase over the last year in that M2 money supply. Um, now, let me uh, let me. I'm going to talk about that issue in in just a minute. Is that possible uh, to squelch? Let let me just. Uh, say that there were, uh, I, I listened to a, a, an hour-long interview uh, of Austin Goolsby. As you know, he's president of Federal Reserve Bank of uh, Chicago, Chicago economist, very well-regarded, very smart. Um, uh, this is, uh, I think you can get it on the web. It's uh, uh, Angus Marcus's uh, 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 seminar series and institute Um that you can find it. Um, and, and he mentioned a couple points. First of all, he was on CNBC today saying that uh, real rates are restrictive. Um, he still thinks that our star, the neutral funds rate, is still 0.5%. And when pointed out that he said productivity is up, he said, shouldn't that raise our star? And he sort of said, yeah, that's interesting. I'll have to think about whether I want to raise our star or not. We've talked about our star going to one and a half percent, which, of course, gives the neutral Fed friends rate at three and a half percent. Now, that's still 200 basis points under what it is today, but not quite, uh, you know, the 300 basis points fall that was necessary on, on that. It would be interesting to see uh, March 20th when the new uh, uh, dot plot comes, what the long term Fed funds rate is and whether other people think it might uh, have have uh, increased. But. In saying that, he says it's uh, we have a restricted economy, and um, uh, the um, uh, you know if if inflation comes in better, and he actually also thought just like we reported last week that that January number was uh, probably one off, and that the February CPI would be better. He also 
interesting admitted that the uh, the component, the shelter component of CPI was faulty. He didn't say the word faulty, but lagged dramatically. And he thinks that, you know, that he said that three quarters of the stickiness of uh, still inflation in the shelter area is due to that, to the, he called it measurement error. I call it faulty measurement of the, of the BLS. He just didn't want to go that far. I think it's 95% instead of 75%, but he did acknowledge and he showed a graph of apartment list rentals. I've got an update. And again, it shows zero increase over a year. And it's basically a seasonally adjusted zero is zero, zero increase over the last two years in, in spot housing. Um, what, what was sort of interesting, um, what he did talk about, and this is a long-term trend, um, is, is the increased amount of financing comes from non-banks. Um, now, this has been discussed a lot by others. Uh, the question is whether it is maybe depressing the money supply in the sense that um, lending through the banks creates deposits in, in the money supply. Uh, lending through non-bank institutions may not be in the M2 money supply unless they issue CDs or commercial paper, and, and then it, it is, it is uh, then bought by money market mutual funds uh, that is in the M2 money supply. Now, there used to be, uh, the Fed used to have a measure, a broader measure of money called M3, uh, that included all the short-term financings uh, like commercial paper, uh, uh, et cetera. That was discontinued, I think, around 10 years ago. Um, but it might be that even though the money supply has not grown in the traditional M2 sense over the last 12 months, that the increase in non-bank financing has been able to fill the gap of finding um, Financing for that. In fact, uh, as, as Austin mentioned, no, most most car loans now are not financed through banks, through, through non non bank sources. So that's something to explore, um, and uh, might help explain why we still have it. By the way, we also one should know in traditional monetary theory we could have a rising GDP even with a flat money supply if the velocity of money increases and the velocity of money is tied to interest rates. So. The rise in interest rates over the last year has increased the velocity of money. You can transact more and more GDP with the same amount of money. Um, uh, looking at that, it's another explanation why the economy can still be strong despite the flat uh, um, uh, money supply. Nonetheless, he called for the fact that uh, unless inflation flares again, you know, we should be decreasing the money supply. No date, of course, uh, uh, was uh, put on it. Um, he also uh, stressed something that we talked about. The, the one of the major reasons why we're able to un, uh, to uh, re, uh, reduce inflation without causing unemployment was the stability of inflationary expectations. He provided a graph of that, and um, you know I mentioned also that the fact that inflationary expectation did not increase like they did in the '80s dramatically means you don't have to bang the economy on the head that many times to get people to say, hey, maybe inflation is over. Uh, maybe they were convinced it was temporary. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, the Fed, you know, slamming on the brakes as much as it did later on has kept that inflationary expectations under control, but it has been under control. And that's a major explanation why we have, you know, why people like Larry Summers and um, uh, and others have been so wrong saying, oh, we're going to have to have a, you know, uh, 6% unemployment for five years in order to bring down the inflation rate. Well, not when inflationary expectations don't rise um, um, uh, on that. Um, I'm still, you know, in terms of what's happening in the economy, a little bit of slowing on this current data, not much. GDP, uh, I think Atlanta Fed has it at 3%. Uh, every, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs have it in the low twos. Uh, I believe low twos, that's still healthy. Um, uh, you know, profits are, you know, basically still coming in. In fact, your, your, your profits are holding very, very steady, if not rising, uh, uh, looking at, at the next 12 months. I, I think, again, the trend is up. Um, I, I do want to mention one thing, um, and I know time is, is waning, but I, I was uh, able to meet with uh, Burton Malkio, author of um, – Random walk down Wall Street yesterday. He's in his low, uh, 90s, and um, 
He agreed with me on almost everything on the stock market. But he's a little bit more worried that we're in 96, 97, a beginning of what could be a bubble, AI bubble, like what we experienced, the tech bubble. I say it's possible, um, but at this point, uh, you know, not conclusive. We got you know on the money supply issue real quick. You you see a little bit more troubles at New York Community Bank. It's uh, we've got some they delayed their accounting report. It's down twenty five percent today. Do you think we're going to get more of these issues at the banks? Is this something that yes. is all one of the pieces that that hurts? Yeah, and we are. I mean, and that hurts lending through banks. Um, I mean, I, I, say, I say there's no problem with the big banks or even the medium sized banks. We're going to have a lot of consolidation. I do not regard this as a systemic threat at all. I mean, you know, the, the, uh, and, and Wall Street is basically ignoring it, although the press is making a big deal about it. I mean, yes, there's going to be small banks that have not marked their real estate properly. Are negative. They will be merged into uh, other small and medium-sized banks to, to get viability. Um, but it, it, it accentuates that trend about... You know, if you don't get a loan through the bank, you don't create money. Uh, you you create money if a non-bank, you know, floats commercial paper, short-term notes that is bought by money funds. Um, but maybe we need to g- revive M3 as a broader measure of liquidity to see exactly how much squeeze is, is, is taking place in this space. Well, Professor, uh, always great to get your comments to kick us off. Be interesting. And I think we'll stick with your conclusion. The trend is your friend uh, for now. So we appreciate you. Okay. Thank you, Jeremy. See you next week. All right. I'm going to turn our conversation. We have the guest for the hour, Jared Dillian, friend of the show. We've known Jared. Jared, I probably have known you almost a decade. Um, I think you've been been, one of our first people at our studio at Wharton. Uh, But brand new book, No Worries, How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life. Welcome back to Behind the Markets. Hey, thank you for having me. It's great. It's great to be back. And yeah, I was uh, I was at the studio in like four, 15 or 16 or something like that. It was, it was quite a while ago. I, I was wearing a brown suit. I remember that much. <laughs> Pre, pre-podcasting days. It was before they even allowed us to do a podcast, but, uh, you know, yep. the, live in the radio. Um, you know, I, I've been following your newsletter also. We're going to get into your views on the markets, I think, uh, later. But I want to give your book adequate time um, before we get into your updated views on what's just happening. But as somebody who watches the markets so closely and, and writes on it on a daily basis, how did you come to wanting to write this book on really a lot of basic financial uh, hygiene for people, how to live a stress-free financial life? Well, you know, back in 2018, I started reading some of the personal finance classics like Millionaire Next Door and Dave Ramsey's Total Money Makeover, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I read all these books. And I was like, man, the quality of advice that people are getting out there is really, really bad. And typically, what is sold and packaged to ordinary people is extreme solutions. And you hear about extreme solutions all the time. Cut up all your credit cards and just use cash. Or never buy coffee. Or buy up a bunch of rental houses and rent them out. Like leverage your... I mean, it, so everything I was reading was like a, like a very extreme solution. And what this book is, is really about balance. And it's really about a middle-of-the-road solution. And how usually there's a middle ground between being cheap and spending a lot of money. And there's a middle ground between, you know, the types of risks that you take with your investments. There's a middle ground with, you know, your use of debt. Uh, I don't like debt, but uh, debt is, you, you cannot live a life without debt. Some debt is necessary. So really this book is the middle of the road solution. Yeah, I, I loved uh, I I listened to it on Audible, so you people can get it on Audible and, and listen if you're more of an audio uh, listen, re- learner than just a, a reader, um, and, and got through it pretty quickly this week. But the, you know, I, I think um, you talk a lot about there's sort of four areas of the sort of big stress, the debt issues. But I think to start, you know, you make a big comment on people don't focus enough on the revenue side of how they they earn money. What are some of your basic suggestions? If, if sort of talk through your views on why people don't focus enough on revenue, what they should be doing to do that. Yeah, I mean, you don't hear a lot about that in the personal finance universe. I mean, usually what you hear is this scarcity mentality type of stuff where 
your income is a pie and in order to save, you have to slice this pie into smaller and smaller pieces. And what I'm saying is you can just go make more pie. You can make more money, which like never occurs to people. People don't think that this is a possibility. And there's a, there's a lot of really simple things that you can do to make more money. On one end of the scale is you just get a raise. And I talk about ways to get a raise. Or you could change jobs. You could change careers. You could go back to school to learn a different career. You could do the passive income thing. You could rent out houses. You could start a business. I mean, that's the number one way that most people make money. And it doesn't have to be a business like Tesla. It could be selling stuff on Etsy or something like that. You can pick up an extra 20,000 bucks. So I, 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 the reason I focus on the revenue side is because people are obsessed with expenses and there's only so much progress you can make with expenses. If you're living on $60,000 a year, you might be able to squeeze out another two or 3,000 in expenses but if you go out and do some work and do some hustling, you could easily get another twenty or $30,000, which is going to have a much bigger impact. And I will add, cutting expenses sucks. Like, it is not fun. But going out and making more money is huge amounts of fun. It's much more enjoyable. And people never talk about this. Well, you, you went from sort of finance, and, and we talked about bank failures earlier and, and uh, the banking system. You went from Lehman to starting your own business. Is it becoming, do you think it's becoming easier to, to do your own business and reach a broader audience to get customers? I mean, do you want to talk about your own experience and how that worked for you and what you think people can take from that? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I don't really view myself as a businessman. Like, I'm a terrible businessman. I'm really. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a terrible entrepreneur. I'm, I'm not, I'm just, uh, what I am is an artist, right? Like I'm a writer, I'm an artist and I'm very fortunate that, uh, you know, as a writer, I work in a space in the financial industry where people will pay for what I have to write. So, uh, I've been very successful. Um, it never, it's always a struggle. It never really gets easier. I mean, in the beginning, you know, I started in the financial crisis and it was it was pretty hairy there for a second. Like it was, you know, banks were failing and you had, you know, the, the whole financial system was collapsing. And I didn't I didn't know that I had started a viable business, but I kept at it. And it's been very successful over the years. So how, how long did it take you to know? Did you have second thoughts as you were going and try to do it on your own? Like what how did you was there an inflection point that you said, yeah, this is really working? Yeah, I mean, so I started writing in October of 2008, and I started accepting payments on January 1st, and when I started getting checks, and by the way, this is, you know, I was actually taking orders over fax, right? Like, this is this is really before PayPal and online forms and stuff like that, so people were paying me with checks. But when the checks started coming in, I was like, wow, this is magic. Like, this is awesome. Like, I can do this. And in the first year of my business, I made $235,000, which was a huge home run. So, and it's just gotten better from there. Yeah, that's great. Now, it, it, you, you talk about a mentality. I, it's something I related to very much of being, you called it a high roller versus a CF. Uh, maybe we'll talk, we'll, we'll go the abbreviation, but being cheap versus being a high roller. Uh, talk through your own approach in terms of how you saw the light of where, you know, sort of mentality. I, I, I was always very frugal and uh, not wanting to spend money. But when did you make the transition How and, and, and the advice that you give to people on this? Well, first of all, let me say that the personal finance industry kind of has this mythological person, this high roller person that has a $100,000 truck and a 580 credit score and their car payment is bigger than their house payment. And, you know, these are the people that are responsible for the downfall of America. They're these, you know, these debt slaves and stuff like that. I, what I found is those people do exist, but they're actually less common than you think. And what's more common, like we have really, because of the efforts of the personal finance industry over the year, we have created a nation of CFs. There's a lot, a lot of very cheap people, people who leave lousy tips people who will stand in the grocery store and spend, you know, five minutes trying to figure out what type of peanut butter to get 
Like it's just stuff that does not matter. So, you know, I, I used to be a CF and uh, I talk about in the book, I was in San Francisco in 2012 and I went into the Prada store and, and at the time I didn't even know what Prada was. And I bought a pair of boots that were a thousand dollars. And that was the moment that I transitioned away from being a CF into somebody, you know, who has a more normal relationship with money. Like, you know, I think it's a moral imperative that we live at our means, not above our means. We shouldn't live above our means, but we should also not live below our means. We should live at our means, which means if you're making good money, you should be spending it. That's it's interesting. I have so many stories where I can relate to being the CF. Like I, my, my, my wife could definitely relate. And it's amazing. She, you talk about how you need a CF to, or uh, well, that you shouldn't go be, you shouldn't, if you're a high roller, you shouldn't marry a CF because it creates stress. And it's amazing. She saw through me because she's more, you know, has a very good relationship and, but doesn't stress too much about spending. But I was cheap. And, uh, you know, there's stories where I was like buying bag spinach versus you get spinach at the salad bar, stuff like that. But, um, <laughs> that, that was in college, a good college story. But, but the, um, when, in, in terms of the, having a, a normal relationship with money, when you, when you talk about that, like what are some of your main suggestions for getting that mentality? It's, it's the hardest thing in the world to do, right? Because it's easy to be one extreme or another. It's easy to spend a lot of money. It's easy to spend no money. But what is the right amount of money to spend? How do you know when you're spending the right amount of money? And the answer is when you don't experience any emotions about it, right? Like when you can go to a store and buy a jacket and spend a decent amount of money and not be feeling guilt or shame or I shouldn't have done that, right? When you can spend money and you don't feel those emotions, like that is when you are living at your means and that's when you have that balance. And I talk about this balance a lot in the book. I mean, the last chapter is all about achieving that balance. It's very hard to do. You know, like it's, like I said, like extreme solutions are easy to sell and they're easy to understand. You know, what, what I'm selling is something that's hard, like achieving balance. Like, like how do you know when you're a balance? So, yeah. So there's four big places uh, where you talk about debt uh, and when people need to be very thoughtful about their first decisions. Um, and, and and maybe we could talk through a few of those to just sort of say where people some of the main suggestions you have for maybe we'll start with with a house given housing is one of the hot topics of the day where where do you think we are in the housing cycle some of the suggestions you give for people when they're looking to buy a house what are what are some of the big views that that you have as one of the biggest purchases people will ever make well first of all you know we have a cult of home ownership in this country people really believe that they're not an adult until they, loan, uh, until they own a house. And 90% of the time, owning a house is more expensive than renting, okay, 90% of the time. And that's the case right now. Like, for sure, right now, owning a house is more expensive. There are some benefits. Housing generally goes up over time. And if you want my macro view on housing, I actually think, you know, if, if you think housing is expensive right now, you should see what it's going to be in five or 10 years. I think it's going to continue to go up a lot. And I think you do have to have exposure to real estate as an asset class, no matter how you get that exposure, um, mostly because of immigration. Like we've had a ton of immigration and we're going to have a trickle up effect in housing prices. And I, I think I think we could be like Canada in 10 years. I think we could have just exceptionally high housing prices. But having said that, you know, the, the decision of what house to buy is the most important financial decision you will ever make. And most people don't really have an appreciation of the risk and the leverage involved, right? And that's where people get into trouble. But even if you can handle the leverage, if you get a house that's 500 square feet too big and it costs 100000 or 200000 more, you're going to be spending... 200,000 more in interest over the life of the loan, that money crowds out your ability to save for retirement or even just spend money on fun things. So if you have 45% of your income going out the door on housing costs, it really restricts your ability to save for retirement. And that's why I say in the book that you should try to have housing costs be no more than 25% of your income. 
Now, it's interesting. I think one of the things, and, and you even have me, uh, actually, I made a, a big payment today. It made me think about it. On, on cars, um, for people's cars, you, you suggest people pay for them if they can uh, and not take on a loan or, or sort of debt and financing. The, the debt financing, my, my wife needed a new car uh, at the end of last year. We got a Kia Telluride. Uh, and you know, the, the loans were like eight to 9%. I mean, it was crazy. And, uh, you know, I, I was thinking I should pay that off. And so I, your, your advice got me to sort of want to pay off my, my car loan, paid off half of it today. Um, but what, tell us about your views on this, on, on, on where people, where, where, where they go wrong on these cars. Well, unfortunately we all have to buy cars. We just do. And a car is a terrible investment. It's the worst thing you can spend money on. And you just try to minimize the damage. 90% of cars in the U.S. are financed. Only 10% are paid for with cash. And that number is actually getting smaller as cars get more expensive. The average price of a new car right now is $46,000. So most people can't pay cash for a car. You have people like Dave Ramsey who encourage people to pay cash for a car. Just for a lot of people, it's not possible. They're going to have to take on debt. So, the, so it's really about minimizing the damage. And my advice in the book isn't to get a used car because used cars can have maintenance issues. I'm a little I'm a little leery of getting used cars, but if you get a cheap new car like a Honda or a Hyundai or a Toyota or something like that, something that doesn't break down that you can drive for 15 years and fully depreciate, that's really the answer to the car problem. I had a 2008 Honda Accord for until just last year, so I'm, I'm very much with you on on. Uh, on that program, but I think I was being a little CF also, so I had to I had to do my own personal <laughs> personal upgrade at some point. Um, so, so we talked about housing, talked about cars. Now, on the other big thing is people are if they have kids or they're thinking about um, for themselves. If we have any young listeners, student loans is another really big source. How do you think about college student loans? How should people think about the types of schools they should go to? Uh, in, in your view, well. I would say the biggest problem we have with student loans right now are income-based repayment plans. So somebody goes to Coastal Carolina University, they take out $100,000 in debt, and ordinarily the payment on that would be $1,200 a month, but the government says, okay, we're going to means test you and you make $50,000 a year so you can afford $300 a month, so your payment is $300 a month. And people say, cool, my payment is $300 a month. But the problem is that the $900 that you're not paying is negatively amortizing and it's being added to the back of the loan. So even though you're making payments on this loan every month, the loan actually gets bigger. And you see people complain about this on Twitter all the time. You see, you see some bonehead that tweets, you know, I've been making payments on my student loans for 15 years and they've gone from 70000 to 100000 and then they want to vote for Bernie Sanders, right? Like the, because, you know, the student debt should be, you know, free. So really the solution in the book, the, what I talk about, there's a couple of tiers. So if you get into a top tier school and Penn for sure is one of them, especially Warden, if you get into Penn, it doesn't really matter what you're paying. Like that degree is going to pay for itself over time. The unemployment rate for people graduating from Penn is zero. Like you're going to have a job, it's going to be a good job, and the connections that you're going to make while you're there are really going to pay for that degree. If you go to a second-tier school, you can only take out $40,000 in debt. And the reason I came up with the $40,000 number is because you can pay it off in five years. You can pay $8,000 a year. You just don't have the earnings power to support a higher level of debt. And if you go to a third-tier school, like a not very good school, then you can't have any debt at all. And that's the solution. You have to pay as you go. That's a big suggestion. And so that, and there's, it, there is, it's, it's very interesting. And, and I, I personally have, can, can attest. I mean, I, I, I the, the people I went to school with 20 years ago, all doing very well. I, my personal life story changed. You talk about how important one meeting can change a life. I, I live that story of one meeting with the professor has, has changed my life uh, in a big way. Um, but it's, it's interesting on the, 
we had the the former dean of Wharton, who was Patrick Harker, on our very first podcast. If you go back to the very first podcast we ever did on Behind the Markets, the former dean of Wharton, he was at the Philly Fed president, still the Philly Fed president, came on and we were talking about people, too many people go to college, actually, and that there are not enough people going to trade schools, that uh, that they should actually, you know, that there's sort of these degrees that end up not being able to be paid off. Is that your view, too, on this, that they're just people are are too many people are think that they have to do this traditional college experience and taking on too much debt that they can't grow out of we have an oversupply of people with degrees and we have an undersupply of people without them and that's reflected in the economics 2017 i was in wisconsin and i was at a beer distributor and i was talking to the owner of the beer distributor and he said look like we hire college graduates and pay them $55,000 a year to do sales. And we hire high school dropouts to, try, to, to drive trucks and pay them $110,000 a year. Like that's, that's the free market at work. You just have an oversupply of people with degrees and an undersupply of people without them. We have too many people going to college. That's the problem. I, I don't know what the number is right now. I want to say that like, 60 or 70% of high school graduates go on to college. That number should probably be closer to 50%. And that would probably fix a lot of these problems. Yeah, it'll be, I, 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 there's a, a lot of different programs that some of these, uh, uh, the Philly Fed has actually done some studies on um, apprenticeships and other things that try to get people to, to, to find out how they can get these types of other experiences. Uh, it's sort of quite interesting, your views on and giving people a number that 40,000 is the right number for a second tier school. Uh, and I think that's probably a lot more than people have a lot more than that. It, it's an interesting question when you talk about Bernie and paying off the student loans. You hear a lot of this mentality of, well, maybe the government's going to pay off the loans. Um, what did you think about all those programs like if you're if you have the student loans would you be paying them off knowing that there's potential that they're going to wipe out all this debt no of course not i mean you would uh like you know i i know a guy here in town who has been carrying around student loans for 15 plus years because he always had some expectation that they would be forgiven at some point and um it hasn't happened yet but you know, what you've seen Biden do is make use of some programs like the PSLF, the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, and, you know, just basically wipe out $100 billion worth of these loans. Like, it, that's within his power to do that. Um, that. That program was in place prior to the Supreme Court decision. So, yeah, I mean, if you thought there was any chance of your loan being forgiven, there's really no... There's no incentive to pay it off at all. So, yeah, it's, it's sort of re- really interesting dynamics, and, and watching that all take place will be interesting to see if uh, more free giveaways to try to pay off these these student loans. I want to start focusing a little bit more on some of your suggestions for saving and investing, and, and something you call the the awesome portfolio. Um, we'll talk through what your suggestions are for for how people invest their money. But how, how did you come up with the awesome portfolio? Give us some some background on how you started thinking about this. Yeah, you know all about the awesome portfolio. I've been it's talking awesome. about this for years. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it really, this was like five or six years ago. Um, I was tinkering. I was back testing some stuff. And um, I took a, I took a, I basically took a portfolio of stocks and bonds. And then I, I added gold to it. And uh, I saw that the risk characteristics of that portfolio increased a lot, got a lot better. And then I added cash to it and it got better. And then then I added real estate to it and it improved remarkably. And it turns out that if you have a portfolio that is equal parts, stocks, bonds, cash, gold, and real estate, this portfolio gives you something pretty close to the return of the stock market within about 1% with about half the risk. Like it is, it is magical. And I think if you said to a lot of people, you said, look, like you can make 9% a year in the stock market, or you can make 8% a year in the awesome portfolio. And you're going to have half the volatility in your max drawdown in any given year is 12%. Like, I think, I think a lot of people would go for that. 
You talk about uh, gold. Uh, you gave gold the 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 uh, acronym from as the Dennis Rodman of the team. I, I, I like that uh, I like that statement. As growing up watching the Bulls and and, and some of the Detroit teams that he was on, give us the Dennis Rodman story. What why is gold so important as uh, the key the key part here? Well, Dennis Rodman is one of the greatest basketball players of all time, but there was actually a lot of debate as to whether he should be in the Hall of Fame because he didn't score. He only scored six points a game. So if you had a team that was five Dennis Rodmans, it would be the worst team in the league because it wouldn't score. But if you take Dennis Rodman and added it to a, to a team of four guys that can shoot and score, then that team becomes amazing. And that's really what gold is like in a portfolio. If you had a portfolio that was just 100% gold, it wouldn't be a very good portfolio. But when you add gold to a portfolio of other stuff, it's it, it, gold is very weakly correlated to other assets. And to the extent that it is correlated, those correlations are not stable. So over time, it has a dampening effect on volatility and it improves the risk characteristics of the portfolio. Now, what, what do you think is going on this year? I mean, people were saying, you know, its relation to inflation has been, you know, it, it's sort of this long-term store of value is one of the things people say, and, and they're looking at other commodities for some of this inflationary risk. But what, how do you think about the drivers of that today with all, with all of what you see around the world? What, what is, uh, what's your view on gold today? Uh, just is gold specifically or all commodities? Yeah, yeah well, gold in particular, but you can say relative to other commodities too. Um, you know, I, look, when I, first of all, there's, there's just a bunch of reasons to hold gold. One is because of its diversification properties, but another reason to hold gold is because of the deficit, right? Because if you believe that the deficit problem is intractable and someday the supply of bonds that we issue will overwhelm demand and interest rates will skyrocket higher and the response to that will be to cap interest rates across the curve by basically pr printing money to buy an unlimited amount of bonds at a certain interest rate. That, I mean, that is debt monetization, and that is how you have runaway inflation. And there's been historical precedents for this in other countries. This has been sort of happening um, on and off since 2008. Um, I think during the 2010s, we had uh, a period of disinflation, uh, which was induced by technology, which I sort of led people to believe that this wasn't happening. But that is that is kind of the end game for gold. And you don't really hold gold because you say, I, look, I'm going to buy gold and it's going to go up 100 percent and I'm going to get rich. You do it really as a to protect your wealth as a store of value. And a lot of this is like, you know, nutball stuff you hear on the Glenn Beck show, like in the commercials and stuff like that, like, you know, with these gold dealers, like you want to buy gold to protect your wealth. I mean, a lot of that stuff is kind of shady, but it's, but it is, there is an element of truth to it. There's a kernel of truth and it is about protecting yourself against runaway inflation. Now, now, the narrative for this younger generation, um, you know, they've been saying that Bitcoin is this generation's gold. They call it digital gold. We don't love that term at all because we think you can actually make gold and, and put it actually into a digital format. But what do you think about Bitcoin? Uh, is, it, is it taking away some of the demand for gold that from otherwise buyers, given some of the narrative overlaps of a fixed supply of Bitcoin? Like you have, you know, not that much gold that's hard to get out of the ground all the time. Yeah, I think it is actually. I think it is taking away from some of the demand. Like what you've been seeing is a lot of outflows out of the gold ETFs uh, and the gold miner ETFs and a lot of inflows into the spot Bitcoin ETFs. I mean, the spot Bitcoin ETFs are taking in on average about $500 million a day. You know, that is that is like, look, when, when the gold ETF, when GLD was launched back in uh, 2005, like those were the types of inflows it was getting. It was one of the biggest ETF launches of all time. And now those flows are going towards Bitcoin. Um, so would you ever think about updating the awesome portfolio? Is, is, is Bitcoin ever get a roll? Well, I, I mean, I've actually been asked that before. And I think it would be, um, 
I think it would be acceptable to carve out a small piece of the gold allocation and give it to Bitcoin. So instead of having 20% gold, you would have 18% gold and 2% Bitcoin. But one of the reasons you don't do that is because this is about living a stress-free financial life and you want to have a portfolio that doesn't give you a heart attack, right? So like it, you don't really want to add something with an with a historical volatility of 120 to this like safe boring portfolio that lets you sleep at night you know like and for sure what's going to happen is if you add bitcoin to the awesome portfolio what are you going to be staring at all the time bitcoin you know like you're just going to be watching it like constantly so yeah it's an interesting uh, a very interesting dynamic so let's talk a little bit about um some of your current views on things going on in the market. I mean, the, the, the we keep seeming it's all AI all the time, uh, and there's been a number of these these big stocks that are are there. Well, how what's your sense when people talk about? Are you you know you've got the bulls like Dan Ives who say we're 1994, 1995, the beginning. You've got these others saying we're sort of later stage, we're classic bubble times. What what's your view of where we are in this cycle? I don't know. I don't know. I really don't. If I if I knew the answer to that question, I would I would have a trade on. I mean, I'm kind of focused on different stuff. Uh, I'm focused on what I think is the top in private equity. Uh, I'm focused on a renaissance in Argentina and economic renaissance. Uh, I'm focused on, you know, Google like. But I can't I can't answer this question. Yeah. You know, uh, like the. I, it's too hard. It's too hard. I don't know. Sometimes you have to put things in the too hard pie. I, I agree. But so, <laughs> so, so let's let's talk about a few of those. I mean, I, I uh, the the Google story is interesting because it's very topical. They they released their AI bot and it's got all these very uh, interesting responses. I guess is what, what what things you could call it. And so, what's your give us your your take on what's happening at Google and uh, and the trades that you're thinking about there? Well. You know, Google is a very bloated company. They have 182,000 employees, and they could probably run the company with 10,000 employees. Like it's it is it's incredibly bloated and inefficient, and they haven't meaningfully innovated since 2012, since they put the Google's you know Google suite of products online and Google Maps and stuff like that. Like they really haven't innovated, and there's been sort of this undercurrent that, you know, the search business is not really showing you the results that you want. And you've had some competitors come up like DuckDuckGo and stuff like that, but they haven't really taken off. So really what happened when Gemini was released was it really diminished the trust in Google. And people said to themselves, look, like if one day Google's plan is to implement Gemini, not just in AI, but in search, and all of the search results are going to show biased results, then this is not really where I want to be sending my search queries. So Google's market share in search is over 90%, but I can totally see a scenario in three years when a lot of that market share goes to chat GPT and Google really has to sort of think about like, you know, we have 180,000 employees and we're, you know, we're losing market share in search. And, you know, I, I think, I think the Gemini release is the beginning of the end of the company and its dominance. That's a big, a big statement, but it also has potential. If it has the type of bloat that you're talking about, they, they, I've I've been thinking it's going to be the next meta in terms of, Hey, last year was the year of efficiency. They were down 20% headcount, but their revenue was up 20% because they figured out how to use AI. Could the year of efficiency be in the cards that, that be one of the things that, that got Google back in the right direction? Did you say efficiency? A year of efficiency, getting rid of all these people and letting things run, and uh, maybe they, they do better with actually less people. Well, I, I mean, I, I think if Google laid off 20,000 people, I think the stock would go up a lot. Like, I think it would probably go up 10%, you know? I mean, this is, it's kind of an open secret that they've overhired, yeah. and they're just carrying too many headcounts. So, yeah, I think that would be viewed positively. Yeah, we'll see if they uh, that comes to be. I think that's that's. I think they're going to be the 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 next one to try to do the Mark Zuckerberg playbook, but but we shall see. Uh, what's what's the story on, on private on private credit and uh, and and Blackstone? What's what's the what's our thesis? 
Um, well, you know, Tony Robbins had a book come out about private equity, how this was the holy grail of investing, the holy grail. <laughs> it's magic money. Um, uh, this private equity is a strategy that's been so successful for so long. And I think a lot of it is dependent on, you know, a low interest rate environment, which has gone away. And it, it, there's a lot more competition in the space. And, you know, when I when I talk to young people in their 20s, they all want to pr- work at private equity like that's. And I remember when I was in the financial world in the 2000s, when I was at Lehman Brothers, everybody wanted to work at a hedge fund. And there were 6,000 different hedge funds of all shapes and sizes. And there was this huge hedge fund boom. And then the landscape changed and that went away. So I think this is, I hesitate to say to use, use the word fad, but I think it's, I think it's the latest fad in investing. And I think the Tony Robbins book kind of bears that out. You know, I mean, not to, you know, Tony Robbins is a much more accomplished person than I am and I shouldn't criticize him, but he's not, he's not a financial expert and he's kind of a tourist. And so when somebody like this, like a tourist comes in and says that this is the Holy grail of investing, it's probably the time at which you want to get out. <laughs> it goes into a little bit of your, I, I was going to ask you to talk a little bit about your sentiment driven approach to looking at markets. And this is sort of one of the things you think, I think you do incredibly well in, in the daily dirt nap uh, newsletter, maybe sort of talk through how you came to view this sort of sentiment based approach and, uh, and, and what goes into it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what it's, it's something that I've always done, even back to my time at Lehman when I was trading ETFs. Um, I was really focused on sentiment. Um, you know, I've never, I, I literally cannot use Microsoft Excel. I have spent 23 years in the financial world and I cannot use Microsoft Excel. I, I use it for like my, my cat's weight spreadsheet. You know, like that's, like that's about, like I, I just, like when it comes to the quantitative stuff, I'm a dummy. I'm really more of a right brain person. And I think about emotions and I think about feelings. And, you know, what I found is that, you know, fundamental analysis, a lot of times it doesn't work. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. Technical analysis, sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. But the one repeatable strategy that works over time is sentiment. When people get bullish, excessively bullish on something and journalists start writing articles about it, that's usually about the time that it peaks. And vice versa, you know, when people get excessively bearish about something and journalists start writing articles about it, that's usually the time that it bottoms. And that's that's really the basis of the whole newsletter. That's what I do on a daily basis. And, um, you know, I just think about sentiment. On, on that on that point, you know, you had this uh, one of our friends, Brent Donnelly, does this uh, Economist magazine cover capital type uh, thing and a similar thing. And yesterday sent around this Economist article. Did you take anything from that article where, you know, it, it looked like it was going to be a bearish sign? But then the article because they had this this picture of a cow with or with a bull with 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 bubbles going up. And it, it looked like, oh, this is uh the bull market's going to keep going, and then the actual article was bearish. Uh, how are you re- reading this sort of read on sentiment today? Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, I saw Brent's piece. Uh, I, I read it. I checked it out. Um, by the way, Brent, his work on this is five star. Like, you know, I don't. I remember what I think it was when he was at Citigroup, but he um, he actually like did, did a model portfolio based on Economist covers and like outperformed the market. And then he sent it to the Economist, and they actually did a piece on it. They're like, "Yeah, I guess we are a bunch of dummies. Like we're totally contraindicators." So, like that works. This, I still think the cover is a sentiment indicator. Like I, I think it is. Like a bowl with a bunch of balloons on it going up. Like I, I think it's still a sentiment indicator. So, I don't know. And so, is the conclusion to be short that? Ah, you first. <laughs> <laughs> it's as the professor said, the trend is your friend. You got to ride it until yeah. it until it cracks. Um, 
in terms of some, I, I uh, maybe thirty seconds. Uh, the other third thing you said you were focused on. I, I'm also been. I, I, I we did a show on Argentina and Malay with uh, the CIO of of the Compass Group down there. He came in. He got to a balanced budget in the first month. You think he's on track? You think Argentina can make a comeback under Malay? Uh, absolutely. I I have high conviction in it. Here's an interesting statistic for you. Argentina's stock market is 9% of its GDP. The U.S. stock market is 170% of its GDP. The average country, the market is about 100% of GDP. So if Argentina goes to the long-term average, that's a 10x return. And I, I, I don't, maybe it doesn't go to 100%. Maybe it goes to 50% of GDP. That's a 5x return. Like, Malay has moved so fast and has been so effective, and he continues to have popular support. Like, I still think it's a screaming lie. Yeah, and now maybe more companies come public because now they uh, they can because it's now you've got a, a capitalistic society. Very, very interesting mentality down there. I'm watching it very closely. I got to go make a trip down there and uh, and see what's happening on the ground. But I, I agree with your thesis. Uh, also, also really like what's going on. Um, so, in, in the final closing thoughts, um, maybe any if people want to stay in touch with we gave a great preview of of no worries how to live a stress free financial life and a little bit what they can find on your newsletter but where else can people stay in touch with what you're doing on a database basis who should how they how can they reach out and follow your work uh you can follow me on twitter at at daily dirt nap although i've been a little quiet lately on twitter uh my personal finance website is jareddillionmoney.com if you want to buy the book, you can find it on Amazon or you can just go to buynoworries.com. Um, and yeah, I'm actually uh, have another book of short stories written that I'm going to be looking to publish in November. So keep an eye out for that. So Jared Dillian, the artist, not the entrepreneur, but the artist. But, I, you know, he's been he's been been uh, it's been fun to watch, fun to get to know and, and keeping track with all your views, Jared. So it's been I appreciate you giving us a preview here of of no worries, how to live a stress free financial life. Um, thank you. Uh, I'd like to thank our producer in the studio, Chris Tooks. Uh, you can listen to us every week on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.